This evening we are going to read from Isaiah, or actually 1 Kings, chapter 18. And after I read, I'll tell you why we're doing that. This is a, uh, a fairly, if not famous story, it is definitely dramatic. Perhaps one of the most uh, dramatic in, uh, in the Old Testament. And it's got lots of intrigue and drama. So uh, l- let me just read it to us and uh, try to follow along as best you can. Let me tell you real quick too, Ahab, he's a main figure, he's a king in Israel at the time, and Elijah is one of the greatest prophets in all of the Old Testament. I'll begin at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal with from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed... They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been, to- been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench 
also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is quite a story. Uh, There is much drama and intrigue in it. And the past, throughout the summer, we've been working our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to take a break, though, in September. And what I would like to do for the next four weeks is revisit our vision and our values here at Red Mountain Church. And if you look on the the back of your worship folder, you'll see uh, four words there with brief descriptions that really describe what the leadership of Red Mountain Church has come to summarize or encapsulate uh, who we are, why we are here, and what we are doing. And they represent really key themes that emerge from the Bible and express our identity and vision as a church here in Birmingham as we endeavor to love God and to love our neighbors in this city. And therefore, uh, each week uh, this, this September, I'm going to pick a biblical text that tells us something about one of these four words. And this week, I want to focus in on uh, the first word, the word worship. And the reason we need to look at this word worship is found in verse 37 of the passage that we're we're looking at tonight, where Elijah says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. You see, the reason we at Red Mountain Church value worship is summarized in that one prayer of Elijah, because it highlights the fact that our hearts are directionally challenged. They are wayward. We love and trust and hope in things, even really good things, that were never intended to bear the weight of our trust. And therefore, worship is central to the life of Red Mountain Church because our hearts need to be turned back to God again and again and again with the good news of His grace in Jesus Christ. And so, I want to talk about this important theme and value at Red Mountain Church by looking at this passage to see what we learn about three questions. I want us to look at, try to answer the question, where does the problem of our wayward hearts come from? And what can undo the waywardness of our hearts? And then how do you get in on that? Where does the problem come from? What can be done to undo it? Or what does undo it? And how do you get in on it? So where does this problem come from? I think it's fairly obvious from this story that this story is about idolatry, plain and simple. And in fact, 
this entire section of Scripture in the story of Kings and First Kings is dominated by the problem of idolatry in the life of Israel. And in fact, King Ahab, back in chapter 16, is described like this. Verse 33 in chapter 16 says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is at the lowest of the low, if you will, in the life of Israel. Ahab has forsaken God. We read at the beginning of our passage, when Elijah shows up, he says to Ahab, you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And if we had time, we could go into, not only is it Ahab, but Jezebel. In fact, as we saw in this story, Elijah is the only prophet of God left. And he's the only one left because Ahab's wife Jezebel, who came from a Canaanite nation where the god Baal, who is a storm god, he is the god who brings rain and lightning, which makes him an appropriate god for this contest that we'll see in a moment. She has killed all the prophets of God. And in their place, there are 450 prophets of Baal with state endorsement, and 400 prophets of Asherah, these rival false gods to the true and living God of Israel. This is a low point in the history of Israel. And it's a story, very plain and simple, all about idolatry. But I think the tendency may be for us, as I suppose we could say we're modern people, uh, perhaps the tendency would be to, to look at this story and think, Wow, that's quite a story back there and then. I'm not really sure what relevance it has for a modern scientific world where we, we just don't do this kind of stuff. Uh, we don't see this. this isn't, we know better than that. And I, I want to try to show you that while perhaps the details of the story seem really different from where we live and, and move and have our being today, that... Actually, it's not that different. And I want to try to show you how the Bible helps us to see that. And I want to do that by looking at the first and the second commandment that God gave his people after he brought them out of Egypt and delivered them from slavery under Egypt's tyrannical rule. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if you think about it, I think a question emerges fairly quickly. Well, what does God mean when he says other gods? What's in view there? And he answers that question with the second commandment, which reads like this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Here's what God's saying. He is saying, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment he is saying, do not let anything and all of creation take my place. He is saying that anything in creation can become an idol. It can be something that you put your ultimate trust and hope in, that you stake your life on, that you look to for security for acceptance, for meaning, for purpose, for an identity. 
And Jesus, actually, in Matthew chapter 6, gives us a little bit of a, of, of a taste or an example of what we read in, in those first two commandments. In chapter, 20, in chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, very simply, you cannot serve God and money. There's nothing wrong with money. But Jesus gives voice to what the first and second commandment are talking about. Something like money can become a God in your life. A relationship can become a God in your life. Your family can become a God in your life. It becomes the thing that you serve, that you live for, that if you didn't have it, you would not know which way was up or down. And you see, I think, hopefully, maybe you're you're beginning to see that the Bible's understanding of idolatry, the problem we see in this passage is it's much more sophisticated than perhaps at first read. And it helps us to better understand the waywardness of our hearts, why worship is so vital and crucial to the life of a church. Because think for a moment, what, what is an idol? An idol is very simply anything you serve or live for to give you what only God can give you. That's an idol. Or another way to put it is, as one writer says, we want things and we aren't sure God will give them to us. So we put our trust in other gods. The activity of idolatry is misplaced trust. It is the diversion of our hearts that is just woven into our very nature as human beings, ravished by sin, to distrust God. And therefore, idolatry flourishes. Misplaced trust is diverting our trust from God to anything else that we would look to to give us what only he can give. And therefore, Elijah, he goes straight to the heart of the problem here in verse 21. After he's encountered Ahab and asked Ahab to summon all of the people and all of these prophets to Mount Carmel, which is uh, Baal's territory, as it were. It's on his home turf. He says to all the people of Israel, how long will you go limping between how long will you go limping between two different opinions? He asked them this very penetrating question. And this this phrase limping between two opinions, it's honestly it's a difficult uh, Hebrew idiom to translate accurately. But the closest that we get to is what we often say sitting on the fence. Where we're looking at two options, and we just aren't quite sure which one we want to go. We're fence riders. And that's actually a little bit too positive, even, for this story. Because, as you'll notice later on, the, the altar to God has been torn down. It's not as though God's people in this situation are really neutral. They've made their choice. They're with Baal. But they are still God's covenant people. They're still God's people that he has called and chosen. And he's pursuing them. And here, Elijah asks them this penetrating question. How long will you limp between these two opinions? Let Let me try to give you what I mean by what I think is being said here. 
Another way to put this is that idolatry is brokering a deal with God. It's essentially saying, I'll trust you and serve you if. And you fill in the blank with whatever condition you may have. It might even be a really good thing. But it's still brokering a deal with God. We want God to help us, but not to remake us. That's the problem of idolatry. We want God to make things work out well while leaving our idols intact. You see, that's the waywardness of our hearts. That's the question that Elijah presses on the people of Israel. And he presses it on us through this story. How long will you waver? Will you limp between two opinions? You see, Jesus, in the same passage that we, I just mentioned earlier, while Elijah puts this question, puts this to us in a form of a question, Jesus puts it like this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, the misplaced trust, the problem of idolatry and wayward hearts of this story is that we become persuaded that we can worship God or not or, and worship something else. And that's actually not a rejection of God. It's not a denial of Him. And Jesus is saying that simply is not how it works. God will not play second fiddle. Therefore, if we are to see the problem of where this way, our waywardness of our hearts comes from, we have to realize that the waywardness of our hearts, our inclination to put our trust in something other than God, is much more serious and severe than perhaps we tend to think. And so you see, the problem of our wayward hearts is this misplaced trust. And trust doesn't necessarily come naturally to us, or actually, I guess it's better actually to say that trust in God doesn't come naturally. And in fact, trust in other things comes almost too naturally. And so then the question is, well, what can undo that? What can undo the waywardness of our hearts? Let's look at this story here. This essentially, it's this contest between Elijah as God's prophet to his people and nothing less than 850 prophets, prophets of Baal and Asherah, all who meet on the mountain, which in, in ancient Israel and ancient Near East, high places were often con- considered places of worship, which is why they meet on the top of Mount Carmel. And it's a contest that Elijah lays out in front of the people, and they all agree to it. Essentially, it's this. You offer a sacrifice, and you cry out to your God, and if he burns up, the sacrifice, and mine doesn't, then that's God. If I offer sacrifice and ask my God to consume the sacrifice, and he does, then my God is the true God. And what's really interesting and important to see here is that Elijah is completely outmatched. It's a totally unfair contest. And what I want you to see by highlighting this is that it does two things. It magnifies God's power. And it shows the utter powerlessness of our idols. Let me try to show you this. How how is it totally unmatched? Well, first of all, as I mentioned, this entire contest happens on Baal's home turf. 
This is not in Jerusalem, in the heart of where God's people live. It's not even in the central part of the northern kingdom of Israel. This is outside in Baal's territory. Furthermore, the contest is in complete uh, congruity with Baal. He's the storm god. Here we have, we're on the mountain. There's a sacrifice. Burn it up. Well, he's the storm god who supposedly has the power to strike it with lightning and consume it. Fits his skill set, if you were. Then also, he's again, Elijah's completely outnumbered. The prophets of Baal spend way more time in treating their God than, than Elijah does. They spend from morning till noon, from noon till evening, the entire day. Elijah says one prayer. Furthermore, the advantage here is stacked against Elijah at his own doing. Because after he prepares the sacrifice, he orders people to douse the sacrifice three different times with buckets of water to the point of filling up these trenches. In other words, if Elijah's God is going to prove that he is the true God, there's going to be no mistake. Because there is nothing in this story that argues for Elijah's strength, either in number or in piety or in zeal, nothing. Here we have this story where this, it's stacked against him and they both cry out for, for their respective gods. And strikingly, when the prophets of Baal are done, we read in verse 29, no one answered. No one paid attention. And then after Elijah in verse 36 and verse 37, praise. That's all he does is praise. We read in verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the people fell to their knees and proclaimed that God is the true God. You see, this story, it's meant to illustrate the absolute power of God over every false god. But it's also meant to illustrate by this sheer contrast how utterly weak and powerless any other God is. Whether it's an idol that you carve out of wood or whether it's your career or whether it's your money or whether it's a relationship or whether it's your children's happiness and success or whether it's the good that you do. Whatever it is, however powerful it may seem to you, this is a story that teaches us again in the face of God Before God, nothing has power in light of him. But I want you to notice that at center of the contest is not just the difference between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, but at the center of the contest is a sacrifice. Elijah, here in verse 30 to 33, the story tells us how he sets up, he repairs the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And I want you to see in the sacrifice that Elijah offers two things. Notice what we see here in verse 30 and 31. When Elijah, he calls all the people near to him. And then in verse 31, he took 12 stones 
according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. First of all, what I want you to see, this altar and the sacrifice are identified with God's people, with their true identity, the identity that God gave them, that they've always had, ever since he called his people to be his people. The sacrifice is identified with his people. But then I also want you to see the absolute acceptance, God's acceptance of this sacrifice. Look in verse 38. After Elijah prays and the fire of the Lord consumes the burnt offering, listen to to this. Listen to how far-reaching his acceptance and consumption of this sacrifice is. Consume the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. What's that mean? That means God, in consuming this sacrifice that is identified with his people, has completely atoned for their sin. All of their idolatry, all of their misplaced trust, all of their sin against him, their distrust of him, has been forgiven. It's been consumed. God has atoned for their sin. He has accepted a substitute in their place. And you see here, here we have, in this sacrifice, at the center of this contest, this startling truth that is at the heart of the good news of the Bible, that God is able to consume our sin of idolatry without at the same time consuming us. And you see, we here today, how is that true for us? That's true for every person who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus because in the gospel, it's not with a bull and a show of fireworks, but with a cross and the costly sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus identifies with us. He takes our names upon him, hanging on the cross, bearing the punishment that we deserve, in order that we might now know that God has atoned for our sin. The penalty has been paid. The price has been met. That there is forgiveness. And the only adequate response to that great grace of God is what we see in the story. That people fall to their hands and their knees. And all they can do is confess that He alone is God. He alone is worthy of their worship and their trust. So you see, even more than God's power, it's God's costly love in Jesus Christ that can undo the waywardness of our hearts. It's, his, it's because of this gospel that we can be assured that God is not stingy. That he's not holding out on us. For he did not spare even his own son. And only this can turn back our wayward hearts. And so now the question is, if that can turn back our wayward hearts, how do you get in on it? Notice what happens here in verse 36. Elijah, again, when he prays, what does he pray? 
He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and is of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. What's he praying for? He is praying that you and I would receive God's messenger who is sent to make God known. See, Elijah, like Moses, two of the great prophets of the Old Testament, both appear with Jesus in Mark chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is an, an undeniable message from God where he actually does say, with Moses and Elijah there about Jesus, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him to be the messenger from God? And not just a messenger, but God in the flesh, the exact imprint of God's nature, who has come to show you what God is really like. That he is so giving, he comes to you with his hands open, even at the point of giving his own life for you. So how you get in on this, you, you need to receive God's messenger and learn from him who God really is and what he is really like. But then secondly, you need to learn how to identify the idols in your life. How do we do that? Let me give you some steps here, some suggestions. How can you begin to identify the idols in your life? Let me ask you some questions. Where does your mind go when you have nothing else to think about? What do you return to regularly to get joy or comfort in the privacy of your own heart? What is your attitude toward money and possessions? When Jesus states it like this, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Where is your heart? What has the affection and grip of your heart? What is your functional savior? This is particularly, I think, relevant for religious people. How do you respond to unanswered prayer or unfulfilled hopes? When you pray and work really hard for something and you don't get it, do you explode into anger or do you plummet into despair? Or perhaps look at it from more the emotional side of your life. What, what are the uncontrollable emotions that you have? Like, for example, anger. Is there something you believe you must have, but you just can't get it? And you begin to fume in anger over your inability to get it. Or maybe fear. Are you consumed with fear because something you love is threatened and you just can't imagine life without it? Or maybe anxiety. Do you feel you have to perform and succeed to be fulfilled and feel significant? So we need to receive God's messenger to get in on this. We need to receive Christ. We also need to know our hearts better. We need to understand the ways in which our misplaced trust works. But then lastly, how do you get in on this? Very simply, by prayer. That's the one thing Elijah does in this story. He prays. It's not his zeal. It's not his religious fervor. It's not his piety. It's not his effort. It's simply asking God to answer. That's something every one of us can do. There are no qualifications or skill sets you have to have other than to be able to say, God, answer me. Help me. 
So you see, the waywardness of our hearts, it requires nothing less than the costly obedience of Jesus for us. This is why worship at Red Mountain Church is so important to us. Because worship, gathering together, week in and week out, worshiping God even in our homes, or even as we sit down to read the Bible and pray even, worship is what God uses to diagnose our wayward hearts and at the very same time to lead us back to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for stories like this that are so vivid and dramatic, and yet they're so different from our daily lives that it in some ways gives us an opportunity to to perhaps look at our own lives differently from a new vantage point. And, and we ask that you would do that for us through this story tonight. We ask that you would help us to see our wayward hearts and our great need to be led back. And that you have done that in sending Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us back to you. Father, help us to find our great joy, our great peace, all of our security and our identity in the sacrifice of Jesus who left nothing and gave everything in order that we might have everything through faith in him. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.